Jesus was a pretty popular guy. I don't, I don't know if you know that, uh, but still is, by the way. Still maintains that level of, uh, of popularity. Really, really well known. And there's a thing about uh, people who are really popular. It's hard for them to find alone time. Do you know what I mean? Like it's hard to get away. Yeah. <laughs> but Jesus would do some pretty peculiar things to get alone. Like he would go up on top of a mountain, which is really more of a hillside uh, to get away, go out into the wilderness, or in one particular case, went out into a boat into the middle of the sea just to get alone. Anybody ever had to do that? Like, I just got to get in a boat and go, right? This is where Jesus was at. He had, he had just learned that his cousin John had been executed by the Roman government, was in a really uh, kind of dark place personally, and just had to get alone. So gets in a boat and goes out to sea. And what happens is, is what would commonly happen with someone so popular, word gets out. Word gets out that Jesus is out on a boat, and then it gets out, hey, and here's kind of where that boat's heading, and oh, I bet if we, if we got to where that boat's going to come to shore, I bet we could meet Jesus. And word starts to get around to the point that um, there's a crowd gathered at the shore where this boat is, is, is coming, is, is coming to dock, and it, it says there's 5,000 men plus women and children gathered. Just to put that in perspective, that's like a packed house at the Memorial Coliseum. That's like a packed Winterhawks game. It's 5,000 people, uh, or 5,000 men, plus women and children. And it would be understandable in this scenario for Jesus to be a bit frustrated, right? He just wanted to be alone. And here he comes to shore to a wall of people. I can just imagine kind of the, the breaths that need to be taken in that, in that moment. But instead of showing frustration, it says that Jesus showed or had compassion on the crowd. And he goes to the crowd and begins to heal their sick. As we continue reading in Matthew chapter 14, it says, that evening the disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, that's not necessary. You feed them. But we only have five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here, he said. And then he told the people to sit down on the grass. And Jesus took the five loaves and two fish, looked up towards heaven, and blessed them. Then breaking the loaves into pieces, he gave the bread to the disciples, who distributed it to the people. And they all ate as much as they wanted. And afterward, the disciples picked up 12 baskets of leftovers. Well, as Laura said, my name is David. I'm one of the pastors here at ALC. And this month, we're spending a lot of time talking about bread. And I know for some of you, that's really exciting. Like, I just want to talk about bread all the time. Maybe you're channeling a little inner Oprah of I love bread, right? And... And that's, it's really important as we look at the story of Scripture, as we look at the grand story of God, we see this theme of bread come up over and over and over again. And maybe we actually don't talk about bread enough. See, it's, it's used as a symbol to talk about Jesus, or God's provision, sometimes even God's very presence. And then in the hands of Jesus, we see a very particular pattern that when bread is found in the hands of Jesus, Jesus blesses it, breaks it, and gives it, blesses it, breaks it, and gives it. 
And it's worth noting here that, that as we read these stories and these accounts in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we're not just reading a straight history. The writers of these Gospels weren't just recording things as they happened, just as they happened. No, they, they had kind of, if I could say, an agenda in mind. Right, because recording a straight history, recording exactly what happened as it happened, is not a gospel. The gospel, if we need a reminder, is the, is the story, the message of the good news of the coming of the kingdom of God. That's what these writers were writing. They were writing gospels. And so if, as we read through the four, we're going to see some of the events maybe are in a different order than that, than that gospel. Maybe there's some details included here, but they aren't included over here. Or this gospel writer included this story, but this one seems like they didn't really care about that story. They didn't write anything about it, right? We, we see these distinctions, and that's actually because these writers had specific audiences they were writing to about the good news of the kingdom of God, and they were recounting events and teachings and stories from the life of Jesus to communicate this message, that there was a point to which they were writing, and it wasn't just to record history. It was to recount and communicate the message of the kingdom of God. And so what was included is not incidental. What's included is not just because it's what happened. There's lots of things that happened that we probably won't know about. Like we don't know what Jesus had for, for breakfast on that specific Monday, right? There's things that were not included. What is included is important. And what's included over and over again in a pattern, that's something to take notice of. So when we see that when Jesus has bread in his hands and he blesses it and he breaks it and he gives it, and then we see the next time Jesus has bread in his hands and he blesses it and he breaks it and he gives it, we should take notice. We should lean into that. That's telling us something about who God is. That's telling us something about who we are. That's telling us something about the world around us. And that's what we're doing in this series is we're taking notice of what Jesus does with bread. We're taking notice of what it means to be blessed, what it means to be broken, what it means to be given. Because the writers had something particular in mind. They're wanting us to discover things about the kingdom of God, about the world around us, and how, what God is calling us toward. Last week, Pastor Gareth kicked off the series talking about blessing. This is a really simple series to keep track of, blessed, broken, given. We started with blessing. And he talked about how we have this identity that God has given us. It's very similar to how parents know their children or have the opportunity to know their children before their children are even capable of knowing themselves, right? God had the opportunity, has the opportunity to know us before we know ourselves. That God calls us blessed, and beloved, knowing more about us than even we do. That God, literally what that word blessed means is speaks well of. God speaks well of us. We're blessed and beloved. And today we're talking about a more difficult concept, and that's brokenness. It's a little bit, not as fun as blessing, I'll, I'll, I'll admit. Because the word broken often has a negative connotation, and I don't need to give examples, but I'm going to. Uh, we think of like a broken heart, a breakup. When you've had enough, you've hit your breaking point. When we run out of money, we're just flat broke. See, you get it. I don't need to be doing this. See, I find it so interesting that, that when Jesus talks about brokenness, he uses the image, he uses the example of bread. 
It's so interesting because bread is one of the few things that is actually better when it's broken, right? Like if I were to take this baguette, right? And if I were to just take a big chomp out of this whole loaf, that would be weird. Some of you would even get upset. Like that's sacrilege, right? Because what we're supposed to do is break it and get, oh yeah, see that crumbly? That's gonna be a fun mess to clean up later. And we get to that soft stuff inside, right? That stuff that's actually good for eating, actually good for what we're intending to do. Think about when you walk into the old spaghetti factory and you get that warm loaf of sourdough, right? Or you go to the Olive Garden and they bring that, those breadsticks and it's so frustrating that they bring the breadsticks before there's anything to dip it in, right? We go to the Red Lobster and we get those biscuits, right? And the very first thing we do is we break into it or we slice it or we get to that inside right? Because that's the stuff that's good for butter and sauce and soup and whatever you're eating, right? That's what we're after. And you guys are lucky because you're going to lunch after this and it's going to be okay. We are now. I love it. I love it. See, Jesus talks about brokenness in the context of bread and that's worth taking note of because Jesus speaks about brokenness in an overwhelmingly positive and restorative way. Consider the feeding of the 5,000, right? When Jesus breaks the bread and tells the disciples to share it, right? Think, think about when you're at the Olive Garden and they bring the breadsticks, what's the worst part? When it runs out because they never bring it back fast enough, right? And everything gets cold. But with Jesus, he keeps breaking and it never runs out. It never, in fact, there's baskets of leftovers, it says everyone ate all that they wanted and there were still leftovers. And you've probably never considered it to this level. But just imagine Jesus sitting there breaking over 5,000 pieces of bread in an evening. That's insane. That's pretty crazy to even consider. But what we're, what we're seeing here is that what's broken in Jesus' hands doesn't run out. It doesn't dissipate. It multiplies. That's what we're seeing with this picture of bread. The disciples, they saw a problem here, that we're out in the middle of nowhere. Uh, it's getting late. These people need to eat. We need to send them home. We need to send them to the villages. And Jesus said, that's not a problem. You, you just feed them. And they say, oh, but we don't even have enough food for ourselves. How are we supposed to feed them? And then Jesus, in that moment, sees an opportunity to do something incredible. See, church, humans have a, re a really easy time. They're really good at spotting problems, right? Seeing like a little hole in that plan or that, oh, that's not going to work, right? We're not as great, most of us, at seeing solutions or seeing opportunities in a problem, right? For example, if you're an introvert like me, uh, most of us, uh, it takes a lot of effort to just be around people. Anybody else? Like, I gotta psych myself up. I'm gonna go to a party, right? <laughs> uh, we, we gotta get ourselves ready. And as a result, it doesn't take very much for plans to fall apart, right? We're not working really hard to, to, to make something work. In fact, we're, we may be even pre-programmed, intentionally or not, to find a way out of plans, right? Uh, we might think, if somebody asks us out for lunch or asks us out for coffee, we go, oh, darn, I'm expecting an Amazon package today. And it's pretty big. I, I kind of got to be here, right? Or, or, or we think, oh, man, uh, what do I say? My kid, my kid looks like they might start feeling sick sometime. I got to be there, 
right? Or maybe you get all the way to the restaurant and it's closed that day and you're, oh, darn it. We're not gonna look for another restaurant for sure. What are we gonna say? We're gonna say, let's find another time. Obviously, we don't actually say what time that would be. We just say, another time. The key is to keep it vague, right? We're finding our way out. In the book of Exodus, we find a man who just like that is is an expert at seeing problems without solutions. And we see is almost pre-programmed to look for a way out. And this man, his name was Moses. When God first called Moses to deliver the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt, Moses' very first response is, who am I to appear before the Pharaoh? Who am I to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt? He's immediately thinking, it's not me, right? Not me. And then God gives Moses a sign to give the Israelites that, yes, you. Like, it really is you. And that sign's gonna be that after they leave Egypt, they're going to come to the, back to this mountainside and worship together. And then Moses responds, hey, but if I go to the people of Israel and tell them the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, they'll ask me, well, what's his name? And then what should I tell them? Like, I don't even have a name to give them, God. And God tells Moses to gather all the elders and tell them, I am has sent you. The Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has sent you. And then Moses responds, yeah, but, but what if they don't believe me or even listen to me? What if they say the Lord never appeared to you? So then God gives Moses three different miraculous signs, more signs that, that yes, God is really sending Moses. And Moses responds, oh, but Lord, I'm not very good with words. I never have been and I'm not now. And even though you've spoken to me, I just, I get tongue-tied and my words get tangled. And then God reminds him, hey, guess who made your tongue, right? I think I can handle, I think I can solve that problem for you. In fact, how about I go with you and you just say exactly what I tell you to say. And I love, this is Moses' final response here. Lord, please send anyone else. And then God gets angry. And then God became angry. And you know what? I would too. Right? If I was trying to get somebody on my team and they're going, hey, but uh, sorry, I'm a lefty though. I'm like, yeah, I, I want a lefty. That's why I asked you. And then they go, oh, but they're so much faster than I am. I'm like, yeah, but I'm asking you. I, I, want, I want you. Oh, but I got to go do this. Other. I'm like, dude, I want you on my team. I want you. And that's what God is telling Moses is I want you. And then even in God's frustration, he gives Moses what he wants, kind of. Instead of sending someone else in Moses' place, God gives Moses a partner to do the task ahead, and that's Moses' brother, Aaron. The deal is that Moses will do all that God's asking him to do. Moses will take the lead, and Aaron will do the public speaking because Moses isn't so great at talking. And what we see in this interaction are two things, and one we see pretty clearly, and that's Moses' brokenness, his awareness of his own shortcomings, Right, his lack of self-confidence, his bad reputation, that he has a history that he's bringing along with him, a lot of baggage, his lack of ability. I just can't do what you're asking me to do. But then second, this is what we sometimes miss. So we see God's willingness and even desire to meet Moses right where he's at, to meet Moses in that brokenness. 
See, at no point does God say, oh, you know what? I forgot you're not good at words. My bad, I will go find somebody else. Right, no, God already had in mind, Moses, this is your calling. I am choosing my servant, Moses. This was Moses' calling, his identity. God saw it long before Moses ever did. This was God's blessing upon Moses, and no amount of brokenness would overcome or change that. And as we continue to read the story, Moses will continue uh, to make mistakes, to struggle with his confidence, to stumble over his words, and God will faithfully meet him every single time. In fact, it's the most impossible task, the things that Moses absolutely cannot do that give God space to do some incredible things, like parting a sea, like providing food from seemingly nowhere, providing water from a rock, right? As Moses is going, how is this going to happen? God meets him there and makes something happen. And just like Moses, we can so easily lock in, get laser focused on the problems in front of us. All the reasons something won't work, all the reasons we can't do it, all the ways we're disqualified, all the reasons it should be someone else. Just like Moses, God wants to meet us in that space. It could be uh, like maybe God's called you to bless your neighborhood. Like you look at your neighborhood and you just love your neighbors and you have a longing, a passion to see your neighborhood thrive. Maybe you see one or two neighbors in need and you're like, oh, I wanna, I wanna be helpful. I wanna bless them. And, and it seems like, man, that really is my calling. It matches my passion. It matches um, kind of my personality. I'm kind of outgoing. You're really confident that that is your calling. But I don't know any of my neighbors. Oh, but my living room isn't big enough to host a party. Oh, but I, I don't know how to bake cookies or brownies. Like, how, how could I even do that, right? We come up with all of the reasons we can't do something. It could be maybe you have a passion to help young people navigate high school. And just by chance, or whatever reason, you end up in a church family like this that has a passion for helping young people navigate high school and transition to becoming an adult, or as my kids would say, a grown up, right? We have a, we have a passion for that. So you found yourself in a place where I can live that out. But I wasn't a great student in high school. I couldn't even help. In fact, I made a lot of mistakes. I'm still like working on uh, some of the mistakes that I made way back then. And you know, I don't even like talking to people. I'm not outgoing at all. So it's gotta be someone else, right? You're locked in on the problems, your past mistakes, your, your shortcomings, your lack of ability. So regardless of your sense of calling or passion, the problems just seem too big to overcome. And that is what brokenness looks like in our hands. But in Jesus' hands, it's quite the opposite. Regardless of your mistakes, your shortcomings, or your lack of ability, Jesus' calling on your life is too big to overcome. So you remember, God knew you before you knew you. God knows your abilities, your story, your mistakes. God still calls you blessed and beloved. God still speaks well of you. In fact, God has a specific place in his story for you, right where you are. 
I know a thing or two about broken things. It's very fitting that I landed on this week. Uh, I have a big body and big feet and no coordination. And so I bump into stuff a lot. Uh, I don't have a mark on my head today. That's a good thing. But I bump into things and I knock over vases and cups and bowls and things just break. And what I've learned over the years is that if it's inexpensive or common uh, or replaceable, it's not a huge deal. It's, it's frustrating. We have to pay a little bit uh, to replace it, but not a huge deal. But if it is uncommon, if it's valuable, if it's deeply meaningful, that's a hard conversation. And a couple of years ago, I had an instance um, with this guitar. The first service got worried. I'm going to continue holding the guitar carefully, just so you're aware. But this is my wife's guitar. She's had it for 17 years. This is the guitar she learned to play on. um, And uh, obviously it's the unique color and everything. It's very, very meaningful. And one day in our apartment a while back, I was uh, jamming on this guitar as one does. I had it strapped to myself and was walking around the apartment as one does. And I tripped over my hobbit feet as one does. (laughs) and collided into a piece of furniture and punctured this guitar. And everyone was home, so we had an immediate difficult conversation. Uh, (laughs) And, you know, life got away from us. We we moved houses, uh, some different things shifted in our family, and we, for a long time, didn't get around to, to mending this, to fixing this. And it was this Mother's Day that my wife said, you know, I want, I want some time with the kids, but for a gift, I just want to get that guitar fixed. <laughs> and so I, I did the research. I put the time into it. I found out that um, this is good for your trivia night. One who repairs the structure of a stringed instrument is a luthier. A luthier. There you go. Um, so I took it to the luthier and uh, put it in front of him. And he goes, oh, you know, that, that's not that big of a, of a puncture and it's going to cost a bit to, to repair. Are you sure you even want to? It doesn't affect the sound or anything. And I just say, you know, but this, it means a lot. So, so we have to. And so he looks at it and he goes, you know, I could get some glue in there. I could press it up and let me see what I can do. So he calls uh, a week later and he goes, you know, it turned out much better than I even thought. And when I went to pick it up, I was so happy because it took me a few seconds to even like spot where the crack was. Uh, and that's a really good sign. And I loved what he said to me, and it it stuck with me. He goes, and and you can see it right here. He goes, you know, that crack is always going to be there. There's no way to get rid of that uh, other than just getting a new guitar. And so if this this is meaningful to you, you're going to walk with this mark. But he goes, but you know, there's a mark there too, and there's a scratch there too, and there's a, a little dent over here that this guitar has seen some life. And now that's a, that's a part of the life of this guitar, um, but you're gonna walk. You're gonna walk with it. You're gonna remember it. And what I walked away with that experience, kind of holding with me. First is that what's valuable is worth mending. What's valuable is worth mending. That we're gonna find a way to mend it, and there's probably still going to be marks and difficult memories and difficult conversations. But if what is broken is valuable to us, we will do what it takes to mend it, to make it whole again. And as we spoke about last week, God's posture towards you, 
is blessing. God speaks well of you. That God sees you as valuable. Just as God saw something in Moses that Moses didn't see in himself. Just as Jesus, in his own dark moment, comes across this wall of people on the shore and has compassion on them. God sees you as valuable. In fact, Jesus valued us so much that he met us in our brokenness. That he experienced the messiness, the pain, the joys, and the sorrows of human existence. In other words, for this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. See, Jesus allowed himself to be ridiculed, mocked, beaten, even killed to meet us where we are, to show us his immense love, to restore or to mend our relationship with God. Even further, when Jesus uh, rises from the grave and, and is meeting with his disciples in his, in his new, restored, living body, he shows them that he still carries the marks of brokenness. That even his mended body carries those scars, those memories. His body was mended, but it still carries the marks. In fact, out of all the things Jesus could have asked his disciples to remember, he specifically asked them to remember his broken body and his shed blood to remember how God suffered the depth of human brokenness and then overcame it. So that we, when we follow Jesus, can experience the same. So that we can see what Jesus can do when we place our brokenness in his hands. If you're joining us today and you've never made a decision or taken a step to follow Jesus. I'm so glad that you're here. And I hope you're experiencing a church community of broken people following Jesus, uh, living out God's extraordinary story the way Jesus showed us. And I recognize that whether you've never followed Jesus or you've been following Jesus for a long time, we might have some brokenness that's blinding us to God's blessing. That maybe you have your own mistakes. Maybe your mind is so flooded with self-doubt. The things that have happened, the, the, the lack of ability you might have, that it's even hard to hear God's love for you. Or maybe you recognize that God is calling you somewhere to do something, calling you to someone. But with your mind flooded, with your own brokenness and doubt. You're thinking, it can't be me. I can't overcome this. See, God wants to meet you right in that space. That's not a space you need to get out of before God will meet you. That is where Jesus meets us. So whether you've never followed Jesus or you've never not followed Jesus, if you're eager to see what Jesus can do with our brokenness in his hands, I wanna invite you to pray with me. And if you're joining me in that prayer, I would invite you to just raise your hand with me. Let's pray together. 
God, I thank you for meeting us right here. That you don't ask us to mend ourselves and come to you and we're ready. No, you came to us. You allowed yourself to become broken in heart, in spirit, and in body. And overcame all of that brokenness to show us what a new life can be. So God, for those of us who have never followed you, who maybe have thought, I, I need to do some work on myself before Jesus would see me. God, today we're taking that step to say, Jesus, here I am. You already know me. You know who I am. You knew me before I knew me. Thank you for speaking well of me, for calling me beloved and blessed. It is in this place that we see you, we choose to follow you. And God, for those of us who have been following you for a long time, who recognize your calling in our life, God, what you are calling us to, but have said, oh, but that has to be somebody else. I'm not good enough. I don't have the skills. I've made too many mistakes. God, I know to us, you're just saying, I know. And yet, I'm calling you. In fact, in some cases, for those very reasons, I am calling you. See what I can do. God, this morning, we put ourselves in your hands. We put our, put our broken selves in, our, in your hands. God, we are eager to see what you can do in that space. God, thank you for loving us, calling us, and joining us. In Jesus' name, amen.